Hello, and welcome to the Legal 500 podcast. It's Barnaby Merrill here, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Agnieszka Frischman, the Chair of the Human Rights Practice at Cohen Mildstein, and definitely one of the leading private human international rights lawyers in the world, as much as you may hate to hear it. Um, Agnieszka, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So, um, Agnieszka, we're talking today about um, access to justice primarily um, from a sort of international human rights perspective. Um, in terms of a number of issues, um, sort of current trends in international law, um, as well as sort of tools available to access justice, levelling the playing field in terms of, of representing survivors in particular. But um, I think the first thing I wanted to discuss was, was something we've uh, talked about before, which is uh, an ongoing trend of, of US courts making it harder to sue for conduct overseas and sort of how this diverges from the approaches in the, the UK and, and EU. So what's the current situation as you see it and, and what do we do about it? Yeah, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Like we live in an increasingly globalized world and um, with more interconnections. And in my practice area where I focus on human trafficking and forced labor, there's an enormous amount of cross-border conduct. You routinely see people recruited from one country, you know, usually a poor country, recruited to another one to work where the goods are then imported and sent to a third country, usually, you know, in a prosperous country like the United States. And um, with climate change, you see impacts from corporations that impact other countries. So, you know, we're increasingly global, increasingly interconnected. And in the United States, we've seen sort of counterintuitive rolling up of the welcome mat, even when the companies that workers are seeking to hold to account are American companies. Our courts are increasingly putting up obstacles to um, to holding American companies to account for conduct that has happened overseas. And it, um, it seems like the EU and and the UK are really going in the opposite direction. They've got expanded jurisdictional principles and um, you know duty of care legislation and lawyers in the Netherlands and in France and in the United Kingdom and in Canada um, have had enormous success at holding companies to account for, you know, selling weapons to ISIS or, or, you know, mining operations overseas that injure people. And um, here in America, it seems like we're kind of got a lot more obstacles. So from that perspective, where, where there are more obstacles and obviously in situations where you are having to, you know, take cases in, into multiple, multiple jurisdictions and you're, and you're seeing barriers being erected on one side, whereas kind of the opposite is is maybe happening in other jurisdictions. What what are some of the solutions available to in, in any situations? You know, I think the long-term solution is it's better for all of us if um, there is more focus on the rule of law and civil society in other countries and people get a robust judiciary and the ability to bring cases where they are and where people feel like they can bring a case and be heard and treated fairly in their home country. And I think then, you know, survivors are better off and the world is better off, but that really hasn't happened everywhere. And it just seems horribly wrong and unfair. If a trafficked worker is trying to hold an American company to account, they, there's nothing unfair about that worker coming to an American court, the home court of that company and holding them to account in the United States. But, you know, we're seeing obstacles in the way that courts are saying, well, the Congress only passes law that does have domestic effect, or you're even seeing where you can't get a visa for your witness to come to the United States and testify, which is, you know, a practical obstacle that you might not think of as, you know, jurisprudential, but it has a huge impact on being able to bring a case to trial. Yeah. And in terms of access to and achieving justice, um, a big thing that we've discussed before is the role of technology. Uh, could you maybe talk a bit more about that? 
Yeah, so I had a case actually that was one of the weird beneficiaries of the COVID pandemic, kind of ironically, in that um, it had been going on for a long time. It was going to be extraordinarily expensive to bring all the witnesses to the United States, and it wasn't really certain that we would get visas to be able to do that. And um, because of the pandemic, we were able to take the depositions, which is when a witness um, testifies under oath, um, over Zoom. And so we took dozens and dozens of depositions and eyewitnesses, um, you know, were able to do it from their own country, from their own home or from a hotel room and do it over Zoom. It was cost effective and we were able to depose many more witnesses than we would have been able to had we done it in person or tried to bring those witnesses to the United States. And we ended up settling that case on behalf of the victims and you know, achieving a really good settlement for them. And um, the iPhones actually made a huge difference. We had a case where the defendant put in photographs of the housing where the traffic, alleged traffic victims were housed. And, you know, they had pictures of a satellite dish and flowers and like really nice housing. And then our workers had pictures of the housings they actually lived in, which is, you know, they had pictures of the water, the flooding, the broken walls, the fallen down ceilings and the really horrible conditions they lived in. And if they hadn't taken those photos, I think, you know, that would have been a much harder case. And workers are also able to take photos, for example, of the contracts that they are forced to sign or that, you know, in other conditions, working conditions. Um, and unfortunately, in some places, I've learned that countries have passed some laws making it harder for workers to take photographs of their working conditions or made it illegal, which is really unfortunate because otherwise the iPhone has been a big leveler and that people are able to preserve evidence by themselves and, and present it in court. In terms of bigger jurisdictions, obviously, once again, probably thinking about the United States, this have there been any other efforts by, you know, particularly sort of defence council or, or, or the companies or governments themselves to sort of push back to the levelling of the playing field that technology has allowed? Uh, you know, obviously, I think these Zoom depositions being a great example of this. You know, I'm sure there will be. There haven't yet. But, you know, the Congress actually has passed some laws that are really great. They passed the Trafficking Victim Protection Act, which enables um, survivors of human trafficking and forced labor to sue in the United States, provided that the perpetrator is a United States national or present in the United States. They've passed um, the Uyghur Forced Labor Act, which you know helps prevent goods made with forced labor in China and the Uyghur camps from entering the United States. So the Congress has been really effective at trying to protect the rights of victims to be able to, to get justice. Um, but yeah, it's kind of inevitable that you will end up seeing some pushback on these things because it's a prop trafficking least and forced labor are profitable, unfortunately, enterprises uh, that disadvantage law-abiding business businesses, but the businesses that do it, you know, I think they're going to try to prevent some of these mechanisms from succeeding. Staying on the topic of sort of levelling the playing field, particularly when you're representing survivors, and this is obviously in, in several contexts of, of human trafficking, of human rights abuses, um, you know, survivors of uh, attempted and ongoing and genocides. What are some, I suppose, other kind of key ways in which the leveling, uh, playing field can be levelled? Um, and also some of the sort of key issues generally surrounding that? You know, it, I think it's always going to be a bit of a David and Goliath situation. You have usually indigent survivors who don't have very many resources and um, have had a struggle even getting counsel. And the cases can be long and expensive and really strain the resources of the attorneys who take them and the survivors who you know have to wait years and years and years for justice. And one thing that I feel is always so frustrating is you kind of wish at the front end there was a better mechanism for people to say, well, it would be better for everybody to just 
kind of look at what happened, admit something went wrong and reach a just resolution right away. Like I've had cases that have gone on for ages and ended up with really substantial settlements for the victims that they're super happy about. But if 15 years earlier, people had sat down and said, wow, you know, this person shouldn't have been killed or injured in that way. What could we do now? It would have just been better for everybody and less expensive for everybody. I had a case where the women survivors got into it because they wanted to pay the school fees for their kids. And the result just would have been better for their families if they had been able to do that at the get go. And then when you settle 15 years later, like, yes, we got a great settlement and they're super happy. But those kids have already not gone to school and already didn't have the lives their mothers were hoping for. And so it's kind of a frustrating. I wonder if the only answer is just a change in mindset or if you have to win a series of cases where corporations think to themselves, well, I'm going to lose this eventually, so I should just deal with what went wrong now. I don't really have a good answer, unfortunately, for how to make it more level and more just. Yeah, I think we, we talked about this before, didn't we? The, the, the idea that a lot of businesses in particular will, will go through a very lengthy process that often ends up costing them more than just accepting settlement or wrongdoing in the first place, and that sort of benefits everyone. But as you say, we're, we don't seem to be there yet. No, no. And I mean, I'm sure some businesses are good because the people I see are, are not right. The people I see are the ones where that didn't work out. And I'm sure there's businesses that do a wonderful job and are really mindful. And 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 I just, you know, I see a subset of, of where that didn't happen. But it's disappointing. And it would have been better for everybody if, if you know, more attention had been paid at the front end. Final thought. Um, and something that is also increasingly important um, in terms of sort of guidance for younger lawyers who want to get involved in this field, even at a time where you know the, the focus might be looking more towards having a profitable career um, in in corporate law, um, and it has become more challenging for all the reasons and more that we've we've already discussed. What are sort of your general thoughts on how younger lawyers can get involved in in human rights law and and balancing that with perhaps a a broader legal career sort of probably likely in, in, in sort of corporate big law. One thing is that there are wonderful, scrappy lawyers like all over the world doing great work. There's wonderful lawyers in Thailand and Kazakhstan and, you know, France and every, like tons of places where really fantastic lawyers are doing good work on behalf of low-income survivors and, and victims of torture. And, and, um, and it's just been inspiring to be able to be part of that community. But for younger lawyers who both want to make money <laughs> and do good work. I think it is a challenge, but the answer is that you can do good work wherever you are. Like in the United States, there's a wonderful tradition of pro bono work where people at big firms can take cases that don't present a conflict for their firm, but can work with, for example, survivors of domestic servitude or um, you know, migrant workers. And I think the answer is to look for ways that you can make a difference no matter where you are. There are going to be people who need help and just try to do good, pick up cases in, that are available like to help immigrants, to help low-income workers, and and get engaged in, in doing good and helping other people who need it, wherever you are. I mean, not everyone can work for Human Rights Watch or Doctors Without Borders. There are going to be people who work for big corporate law firms, but those people can also have impact in either, you know, impact in important cases and bring their very top-notch skills to bear on behalf of victims. Nice thought to end on. Um, Agnieszka, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.